This special episode of Snap Sessions is brought to you by our Snappus Maximus Patreon supporters, Ron Hochsprung and Rick Newman, as well as all our Patreon supporters. Visit our website at thesnapsessions.com to join the backers of Snap Sessions' unique mix of commentary, interviews, and comedy. Look for the support link on our homepage. The following Snap Sessions podcast was recorded and produced last year at the 2019 Mendocino Film Festival. It was our intention to release it just before the 2020 festival as a celebration of the festival and its offerings. But then... The COVID virus pandemic of 2020 forced the Mendocino Film Festival to make the difficult decision to postpone the 15th annual festival until next year, June 3rd through 6th, 2021. Like so many other events during this global catastrophe, participants and fans were faced with a disappointing, albeit necessary, reality. The festival, which has become an annual tradition for so many cinephiles, would not be happening until 2021. So, as our way of honoring our homegrown artistic gathering and to remind you of the great films and discussions that the 2019 Film Festival presented to the world, we present Snap Sessions' look at the 2019 Mendocino Film Festival, released on the weekend which would have been the premiere of the postponed 2020 festival. And as you take a fresh look at the conversations inspired by this little jewel of a film festival, remember... We'll see you in 2021. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. looking at you, kid. There are many film festivals across the United States and the world. There are many in places like Park City, Utah, Traverse City, Michigan, and Missoula, Montana. Sundance, Telluride, Cannes, Berlin, Venice, and yes, even little Mendocino. From May 31st to June 2nd, 2019, we once again celebrated film in this picturesque little hamlet on the north coast of California, where 5,600 people attended a festival featuring 54 films, including 30 attending filmmakers, three musical events, and two fascinating panels one on the role of women in film, and one on the need for increasing diversity. And movies. All kinds of movies. Our goal in this Snap Sessions podcast is to give you a look inside the Mendocino Film Festival, how it works, who's involved, and what they do, and finally to look at how 2019's film festival unfolded. We listen in on post-film Q&As, panel discussions, and interesting moments with the filmmakers, producers, and actors involved. Join us as Snap Sessions goes to the movies. Let's find out how the Mendocino Film Festival began back in 2005.
We talked to a variety of people who have played big roles in the festival since its beginning. Let's start with documentarian and film historian Pat Ferrero, who was there at the inception. We're also here with Pat Ferrero, and Pat is a documentary filmmaker. As she taught at San Francisco State, and she was also the first programmer of the Mendocino Film Festival. Well, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the uh, original days, the, the, the spawning of the Mendocino Film Festival from your perspective. Right. Well, I moved up to Mendocino, uh, retiring from teaching at San Francisco State for many decades, and almost the first week I was here, there was a little ad in the newspaper Anybody interested in helping form a Mendocino Film Festival come to a meeting at Hill House? So I showed up along with uh, Alex Field and George Russell and a few other people that have stayed the course for the past 14 years. The person who had the initial brainstorm idea, Keith Brandon, Brandman and his wife, but a core of us showed up and George and I watched the 200 documentaries and then Keith and, and, and George watched the 100 feature films that were submitted before we even had a track record. It was amazing. Yeah. And year two, I was the program director, and I continued. Then year three, I was totally burned out because I was still teaching full-time half the year. George took over, and he was the program director, and he helped me, and I helped him. And then um, he was burned out after year three. Yeah. And so I took it over and did it for the next five years full time. And for me, it was a wonderful transition to this new community because I felt like what I did is I brought my film community with me. Programming for the festival, I've been an independent filmmaker. I have national and international connections. And I really stopped even soliciting films. I basically curated through my network and my bottom line to the festival because this was my gift to the community to do to be the program director I said you must have a line budget to bring filmmakers this is what will make our reputation yeah and in fact it has because from the very beginning we've gotten extraordinary filmmakers involved and the word passed through the networks and we were a festival that incredible people would come to who ordinarily would not come to a small uh, rural festival, but they came because, first of all, Mendocino's gorgeous. We are able to offer hospitality because we are a tourist destination. And the many hotels and B&Bs and people with guest house made it possible for us to host 50, 75 filmmakers in an incredible setting. We have incredible audiences And every year during the festival, about 100 volunteers who have shown up every year for 14 years keep the wheels running. We couldn't do it without this incredible community infrastructure that steps forward and does, keeps it all running. So um, we've really hit a sweet point where uh, it looks like it's really thriving and sustainable. Also involved early on was George Russell, who this year curated the silent film show, but was involved from the beginning with Pat and others. I I would like to talk a little bit about how I came to do this. I was involved for the first few years of the festival from its inception through 2008, and in that year I was its program director. And the one program I really wanted to direct towards an audience was 
a program of live cinema, which is to say silent films with live music. And in that year, and again for the festival in 2011, and also in 2017 in an interim program, not at the festival, I brought musicians of my acquaintance from the Bay Area. The one program that I never got a chance to do, and I'm thrilled to be able to do it this time, is a program of silent films with live musical accompaniment with local musicians, adepts, all of them, of long standing. Along with programming, there are the nuts and bolts of finding venues and screening the films. Alex Fields, now operations director, was also there from the early days. That was my next question, (laughs) was how did you guys get involved with the Mendocino film? So let's start with Alex. (laughs) Well, okay, so I, I took one year off in 2016, and otherwise I've been involved with every... Mendocino Film Festival. And that from, goes back to 2005? Uh, 2006 was the inaugural okay. year. Um, and it was a whole different festival, that's for sure. Um, we were we were just kind of flying by the seat of our pants. My wife, Shelly, uh, was at the first meeting mm-hmm. of the for the Mendocino Film Festival. And so she is one of the core founders. And um, at the time, she's working at the McCallum House. And she brought in the use of the, their tent. We were, we were having to do everything really on a shoestring budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had uh, Sidney Pollock that year, Laszlo Kovacs, the legendary cinematographer, was also a guest there. So we really had a nice start. Aggie Aguilar, who's mm-hmm. the uh, gaffer yeah. with uh, Sidney, uh, with uh, Laszlo Kovacs. Was, and um, Sidney was Pollock was director of Tootsie, among other things. He was, among, yeah. Among many yeah. other things. Yeah. Many so, out of Africa. Yeah. Yeah. We lost him a couple of years ago, but mm-hmm. he his family had lived in Kamchi for a while. For a long before. time. And, yeah, and he was an advisor to the board of directors and just a, a good friend of the festival. Um, um, and wish we had more time with them, obviously. Yeah. Um, so I kind of worked through the years. I started out in the in the projection world and house manager world, and and then I was lucky enough to get Marshall on board. And we started out those first few years. He was like just one of he was like the key projectionist at Crown Hall, and he and I just kept working together, mm-hmm. and we just built this rapport. Blair Foster is now president of the MFF board and talks about how she got involved initially as a hospitality representative. Well, let me just ask you first off, um, how did you get involved with the Mendocino Film Festival? What brought you there? Um, I was approached the inaugural year um, to participate with hospitality. Mm-hmm. Um, Ann Walker and Betsy uh, Ford approached me and asked me if, if I would participate and help them mm-hmm. um, acquire hospitality and housing for the visiting filmmakers. So I did that for several years. And was that 2002? Or was that I am not even sure. It's okay. all a blur. Mm-hmm. So this is our 14th year. Okay, so, so new math ex- okay, yeah. would bring that to 2005, I okay. believe. Yes. Okay. That's a good question. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So then I've just continued. Um, kind of wending my way through the festival and becoming familiar with it. Um, I did concessions. I was concession manager for many years. I think I bought some popcorn from you. I in, in think that you might have. And uh-huh. so that was fun. And then was asked to be part of the board and it's just continued. Um, I love the festival. I love what it brings to our community. Um, it's exciting to see visiting people and visiting filmmakers, um, creative people come to our community and respond to our community and really love it. 
Um, so it's kind of that elusive win-win situation that you get to expose our community to outsiders and then bring exciting, um, dynamic outsiders into our community and see our community respond to them. But I get the feeling the film festival is growing. Is, 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 it is. That a is. Good it is in many facets. It is um, as far as... Um, people coming and experiencing the film festival. It is, um, that is film viewers. It also is as far as um, filmmakers. And then it also is on a sustainability level. It isn't as contingent and dependent upon a few certain people to keep it alive financially. We're, we're a change, you know, I can't say we're at full adulthood yet, yes. but we're making our way through the adolescent period. We're out of infancy and certainly at upper adolescence at this yeah, point. Sort of like a 17-year-old who is not going to the Clearasil as much as they used Precisely. to. Precisely. <laughs> you nailed it. Yeah. So that's really exciting, and I think that that is what keeps me involved, is just trying to push this Sisyphus, you know, rock up the hill and achieve sustainability, because I believe in it, and I love what it brings to our community, and that is my goal as far as my continued participation is making it a sustainable entity in our community. So the festival has now been going 14 years, and like filmmaking itself, it requires a group effort. It starts with a hard-working core group in the office. Elena Cruz, executive director, and Cara DeFries, festival administrator. And um, I just wanted to ask you first off, Elena, how did you come to the Mendocino Film Festival? How did you get the job? What excited you about coming here? Yes, uh, I moved back to the area from um, the East Coast, and I came into town and started asking who needed help, and I was really ready and willing to do almost anything. I was probably going to work at a hotel or in one of the shops in town but I walked into the Mendocino Film Festival because I had heard that they needed some help. And uh, Michael Fox, the executive director at the time, uh, sat me down and put me straight to work. I, I think um, I had the interview and then it went right into my first day on the job. Well, yeah. I've been with the film festival. This is my second season. Okay. Yeah, right, right, right. so just a little over a year. And what drew you to your job here at the film festival? Um, you know, I moved back to Mendocino, my hometown, about three years ago, and just after I moved back, the film festival was happening, and I came out. I was very excited. I love film festivals, and um, it just seemed to be one of the most wonderful things that was happening in Mendocino since I'd left. Someone mentioned that they always needed volunteers, and um, I said, absolutely, I'd be up for next year, and then it just so happened that um, there was a need for staff the following year, and um, so I just sort of slid right in, which was great. Both Elena and Kara are busy in a variety of ways in setting things up, from organizing panel discussions to finding places to stay to dealing with the board of directors, to running the box office. I like that. It's really, it really looks good. You also have to organize the panels, all the parties and special events, and communicate with the programmers. I wasn't sure what that was. Those are the people who schedule all the films. So you're busy knowing all that kind of stuff, too. You have to talk to the jurors. You have to deal with the board. and You have to run the box office and line up places for people to stay. I guess that's called hospitality. Yep. 
So, which of those jobs is hardest? <laughs> all of the above. Yeah. <laughs> so they all take different point in times uh, where they take stress level kind of thing. Yes, but I would say hospitality is at the uh, top of that list because it's so many moving parts. We have over 30 attending filmmakers uh, this year, so that's a lot of coordinating. Um, and we thank our generous hospitality donors. That includes our local bed and breakfasts, our big inns, and then also uh, private residences. In addition to all the administrative work, there is also the tech and what is called operations. I spoke with Alex Fields, operations director, and Snap Session's own Marshall Brown, tech director. Hi, I'm here with uh, Marshall Brown, technical director of the Mendocino Film Festival, and with Alex Fields, operational director of the Mendocino Film Festival. Why don't we start with you, Alex? You do operations a little bit. Okay, yeah, so so the operational side of this festival uh, really revolves around getting all the venues that we're, that we're having shows in. And we've set got up. four or five? Tell us. This year, we've got, let's see here, we've got... F- Three three screening venues in Mendocino. Uh, the, the Festival Tent, which is our pride and joy, which is only about uh, I think this is the sixth year that we've done that. And how many people does that hold? 500? That's a four hundred seat four hundred theater. We've okay. packed a few more in, like yeah. the Burlesque show last year. You yeah, know, we I, might I don't, saw that. don't you know don't tell the fire marshal, but <laughs> yeah. um, uh, Crown Hall, right. which um, which which we turn into a theater, turn it from that old. You know, wonderful, iconic hall, but really Matt Rowling does a wonderful job building it into a theater. And then the uh, Matheson Performing Arts Center, which is Mm -hmm. at the high school, which is wonderful to have because that's real seats and little, you know, stage lighting, a little bit more of a a normal theater. So what the challenge that we face in, in Mendocino is that there is no movie theater. There's no way to to just go in and plug in a film and show it. So it takes operations, a lot of technical expertise to turn these venues, turn a grass field into a 400-seat theater, right. turn an old hall into a 200-seat theater. Right, it exactly. It takes a lot of work. And then we're also at the Coast Cinemas, which right. is You're actually also, a theater. Coast Cinemas is the theater in the cinema in Fort Bragg, California, mm-hmm. and there's do we get one of those of, of one of their cinemas, or do we get more than one? So Lori Moore, who who is now on the board of directors of the Mendocino Film Festival, has been a wonderful partner with us, and she uh, started out the first year we worked with her. We had one screen at ten a.m. on Friday, on Saturday and Sunday, and then we expanded it to three screens at ten a.m. And now we have a, a whole theater dedicated to the festival the whole weekend, which is a really great jump. We did that last year, yeah. and, okay. and we're doing it again this year. So. Good. So this is a lot on one plate for Alex. And what about the technical side of the Mendo Film Festival? How do you uh, prep almost 40 films? Is it 38 or 39? I guess uh, it's, it's, it's over 40, I think, okay, if, you count, over 40. if you count the shorts program as well and, and real Mendo and everything. So right. it, it's, it's uh, essentially, it's a lot of just patient waiting and, and sifting through everything and watching things over and over again and making sure that it's, it's, it's perfect and pristine. And, you know, these filmmakers have spent, you know, some have spent, you know, five, 10 years on these films and a lot's riding on me, making sure that it, it, it's executed perfectly. So it's just a lot of, a lot of organization, making sure things are where they're supposed to be. And, and my position, I kind of explain it as simply, you know, anything that's on the screen I have my hands on it at some point in time, and that's all the sponsor slides, the sponsor reel, any promos that play before anything, 
you know, anything that plays on the screen, I have, I probably had some involvement in whether it was just, you know, looking over it, logging it, putting it somewhere, uh, making sure it got to the right venue. Um, I'm just responsible for making sure that all gets there. So we have our shorts program and I have to magically make, you know, 10, 11 different short films work together on a Blu-ray and, and, and then also have it, per, you know, play back perfectly digitally as well. And, and then that's just what's on screen. And then we have all the sound aspects of it and, you know, each film has very different sound, whether it's, you know, narrative driven or if it has, you know, a lot of special effects, sound effects, stuff like that. You know, uh, a film like, you know, that was spat out of Pixar or something like that is, you know, has like, you know, a lot of Foley effects and things like that. So, you know, the, the producers that come up here are definitely like they pay close attention to the sound and make sure that the sound is like perfect. So, you know, we are um, definitely held up to a, an extremely high standard, whether I like it or not, because that's just, we're, we're dealing with other people's art. And, and I definitely like, I, I take that very seriously. So it definitely like, you know, my job starts in January when the first films get selected and then they get a tech writer and that's, you know, their first encounter with me is a little message that says, Hey, I'm Marshall. Here's what I'd like you to do and send your codex this way and gets to the office, blah, blah, blah. And then, uh, yeah, then it's like four months of that. And then, April, May is when things start start getting kind of heated and more more print traffic comes in. Print traffic is just films coming in. Um, and yeah, it just gets to be a little bit, it's controlled chaos, as I put it. The Mendocino Film Festival follows through on involving women and minorities. One can see this from the president of the board, Blair Foster, throughout the staffing, through the programming. Um, I'll add one thing. Um, I think uh, one thing I think is very interesting I have found that there's a large representation of women filmmakers, and there will be a panel discussion on women in film, I think. And that should be an interesting discussion. Um, I love the filmmaker panels that that occur. Um, And who drives those traditionally is is the programming director. And Claudia Puig is very interested and champions women filmmakers, and that is very evident in this year's festival, and it should be exciting. Yeah. I think that that's one thing. As I've set up interviews, i found that I have all kinds of women to interview, and also the pivotal role that women are playing in the festival. So I think it's it's without having to push. It's not like, you know, I'm going to go out and find some women to interview. Uh, On the contrary, it's been easy because there's lots of women represented and uh, who are talking and in in positions of authority within the festival. And who does that programming? Who puts all those films on the screens? Who makes those decisions? For the past three years, the MFF programming has been done by Claudia Puig, who also happens to be president of the L.A. Film Critics Association. Sounds totally exciting. Tell us a little bit about (laughs) life as a film reviewer. Well, um, I yeah, I started out in 2001 at USA mm-hmm. Today mm-hmm. and uh, did it for 15 years. I was kind of the second string person for a few years. And then in 2005, they said, oh, you're going to be the lead critic. And there'd been another person before that. And I said, oh, who's going who's gonna to move in and replace you know that other person? And they said, nobody. So I said, well, that's actually lone critic, not really lead critic, but mm-hmm. okay. So then it all fell on me. It just meant watching a lot of movies, uh, which I love to do. I've yeah. loved movies since I was a little girl. Um, so, uh, you know, you get to, you get paid to think, which is something that I've always, I, I one day I started thinking about, it, it's like, you know, I, I've loved to write and I love watching movies. And basically this is just thinking, what is it about this film that speaks to you or doesn't speak to you? And you're, you're you know, analyzing and pondering 
So it's it was a wonderful gig to review movies for USA Today, and it's wonderful now to review them for NPR. And I get to go to film festivals all over the world, yeah. and um, I've been jur- a juror at film festivals, and uh, you know, you just you're I'm immersed in movies. And you're also um, the head the, the programmer. You're the head programmer here for the Mendocino Film Festival. I'm program director. Yeah. Program director. Okay, yeah. great. And um, I was wondering, so. I mean, there's an expansive movies out there. There's a lot of new ones that people want to put together into a film. How do you go about planning that? You know, it's it's kind of a natural segue to go from being a film critic to to a program director or a film programmer because you see so many movies and you you obviously have very strong feelings, either you know pro or con. You pretty much leave out all the middle <laughs> of movies. You, you really want, and you obviously don't put them in the bad movies either. So you just you you see so many good movies that you it's. I always describe what I do as kind of being like a proselytizer or a missionary because you you approach it with kind of a messianic zeal in that you want other people to see these really amazing movies and. Maybe they're movies that are only, you know, you saw at Sundance and they may never be seen by other people. Maybe nobody bought them or maybe they'll be seen in New York and L.A. and then never by, you know, everybody else. So you want to really share the love that you have and the passion that you have for a movie with other people. So that's the place that you kind of start from. Mm -hmm. And then um, my process is I go to film festivals. I go to Telluride. I go to Sundance. go to Toronto sometimes. Um, and I see these great films that I, and then I kind of, especially with Mendocino now, this is my third festival programming Mm -hmm. it. And I have a sense of the audience of, of our, you know, what Mendocino, uh, people, residents like, and also what Bay Area people like. And then also I just, what, what I think is good, um, what I love. And so, you know, you, you think, oh, this would be perfect. You know, I saw Biggest Little Farm. I thought, oh, they would love that up there. Or I Mm -hmm. saw, you know, uh, Mike Wallace or Tony Morrison documentaries, I thought this, you know, this would work. So you're kind of, you know, it's a matter of knowing your audience and then also trusting your instincts and just knowing this is a great movie and people, you know, only a small group of people have gotten to see it, but I want to make sure more people get to see it. Uh, you know, I remember those and I think this would work well with an audience because you have to think about what works for an audience, you yeah. know. How, how do you get the right mix of documentaries and features, foreign films and indies? I mean, how do you mix that all that, together? Yeah, I really try to make it as eclectic as possible. Um, I teach a class, a college class, on diversity in the media. So I'm all about diversity. I really want to mm-hmm. have make sure that we have women filmmakers, that we have uh, people of color as filmmakers represented, and that, that we represent the, the world of films, not just, you know, American films or English-speaking films, but films from as many places as possible to give you. Because to me, watching movies is a little bit like traveling, and I host a lot of those down in Los Angeles. I moderate a lot of panels, and I'm on panels about film criticism or about diversity. Those are always mm-hmm. the, the two issues that uh, come my way. So I thought, you know, this is a perfect opportunity. Let's get women filmmakers to talk about because it, it is, it's been such a big issue you know, in general, and then in the wake of Me Too and Time's Up, and so I think it's a, you know, it's a timely issue, and um, so I will uh, moderate the panel, and then the one in diversity, too, because that's, of course, another really big issue, you know, you have uh, sort of the white male-dominated industry, like so many other things, so it's, you know, I want to talk to people about their experiences, kind of, you know, breaking through that.
Apropos diversity, a few days later I attended the Women in Film panel hosted by Claudia Puig and featuring a dozen women filmmakers, producers, directors, and actresses. Here's some snippets of the spirited conversation I caught that morning. And let me introduce everybody. We have Angie Wang with MDMA here, Gina Leibert uh, with I Weigh Yours Truly, Christy McGill, the producer of I Weigh Yours Truly, Jacqueline Olive, the director and writer of Always in Season, Vesla May Zord, who's the producer of Twelfth Man, Julie Carmen, who is in Windows on the World, um, and uh, sorry, Chris Courtney Kieran, director of Guardian, Jenny Rim, the uh, writer of Age of Sail, and, uh, and Liz Miller with the Shoreline Project. So thank you very much. These are amazing women filmmakers. Here. <laughs> about, you know, gender equity and whether we have actually made some strides since Me Too and Time's Up. I'm going to start way down there with you, Liz. Um, I'm feeling really optimistic. I saw extraordinary change this last year in terms of programming. So from a Canadian perspective, uh, just coming from Hot Talks, where I absolutely saw a shift. And I think my feeling is that quotas matter. Like, if we push, if there's a demand, um, then we can see responses, but we have to count. We have to hold people accountable. Um, and I think we have to demand exactly what someone like Claudia is doing, which is saying, you know, I'm going to make 50% of the programming at my festival uh, directed by women with meaningful content about women. So we don't just need to see women on the screens. We need to see powerful women, you know, contesting power. Um, so I'm feeling one of the youngest people on the panel. So you're just coming into this world. Um, what what is your take? Just in your experiences. Um, well, I, I everything you say, I um, totally uh, agree with that because I do feel like we have to push. But I also I run um, a production company um, that's closely tied to Netflix and kind of these big distribution platforms and. Um, we develop projects, and a lot of our projects um, are, as we are developing, we are already committed to saying we're going to bring um, female directors on, female creators, writers, whatever we can do to help empower the next like generation of uh, animation um, industry leaders, and say that you know, what what can we do within my like universe? Um, so that's how I feel like I am affecting kind of what the next generation is going to be doing it as quickly as I can by really putting out there projects that I feel like can really move quickly over the next couple of years and hopefully it'll make some, some changes in the animation industry. Julie, you have been an actress for a long time, but also you just directed your first short, right? Yes. It was brought to me. Uh, it's about four women who are in prison for killing their ancestors and a chaplain in his first day on the job and how they logistically kind of bury his uh, theories. Um, so some, I didn't write it, someone brought it to me, so um, I've grown to love the material and the performances. Um, we're in the editing process now. But to answer your question, I'm, I'm gonna quote, go with the famous quote that a thousand feathers sink the boat, or a million feathers sink the boat, that it's an individual, like you're choosing to make 50-50 female-male um, 
inclusion here. The word inclusion is being used a lot more than diversity yes. because um, I think that including <coughs> women's voices, I think the lack of women's voices is a historical, it's part of the human condition since the beginning of time. There have been periods where women have been able to be very outspoken and then there's a huge backlash where there's been very, very extreme uh, reaction and condescension is the least of it, you know, yeah. severe punishment and retribution. You are, you've been a producer for a while. I have. We started our company in 94. And I come from a background of criminology and political science, so it's sort of been on my radar to see how this evolved. And I, I do think we can say that we haven't been in a better place ever before than this wave of including women. There's a couple of things that I noticed though. I think we still have to acknowledge that we need to be good collaborators mm -hmm. to make projects happen. Mm -hmm. To cooperate uh, and not compete. Absolutely. Like, we have to demand of ourselves what we demand of men we're working with. So that's one. I think we're smart enough to see that and we're going to focus on that and lead the way because we need to be leaders in that sense. And then the second thing is I think we need to emphasize the female stories in so much larger scale because that is what's missing. The female story and the female angle to the story. And Jackie, I wanted to ask you also about this, but you're a documentary director and I wonder do you see a difference in the documentary world versus the narrative world? You know, I don't know how much I can speak to the difference because I'm inside the documentary sure, world. Sure, sure. Um, and I'm starting to, to look into narrative film and, <coughs> and I'm developing a hybrid project. Um, but I, so the, the thing that I want to acknowledge is that it's really important for us not to just look at, um, or when we look at parity for women, that we're looking at issues of race and how women of color show up, yeah. how um, disabled women um, uh, show up in the numbers. Um, women who are queer and trans, and it's really important that we are always looking through that lens. Um, and that there is, I see that there's increasingly more awareness of the importance of um, diversifying the field. Um, and there's a um, Sundance, who's one of our partners um, uh, with distribution, they have, uh, they just released that their last grant, granting round, um, went to more than 80% women directors. Um, and so those numbers are important, like being very explicit about it. I often hear people talking about um, how to diversify the industry, and then in the same breath, in the same conversation, uh, saying that they don't know how, and don't know, don't know where to find women directors. And you know, I can roll up women directors of color in particular, 50 to 100 right now, who really do show up confidently and capably, and are skilled. Oh yeah, speaking from a producing background, also, or vantage point, um, and piggybacking off what Jackie just astutely mentioned about distribution, I mean, it, there's so many uh, aspects of making and, and bringing a, making a film and bringing them to audiences that, you know, women have been making great strides in advancing, but, um, you know, while the barriers to entry to actually make a film have really come down, getting films financed, getting, getting women staffed on them, and <coughs> getting them into the world... Um, it's, it's, it's a huge, huge challenge, and um, you know, women producers really have to stop and make thoughtful, deliberative actions to yes. bring in young women and women of all backgrounds um, and all profiles to be part of the project. And as this business, so to speak, especially in documentary land, which is you know the economics can be very, very challenging. 
um, evolves and, and we have to figure out how we deal with this highly disrupted distribution universe, we have to do what women do really well, which is innovate and DIY and be entrepreneurial and, and figure things out, but it involves... I actually assembled most of the team for the Ai Weiwei film and mm. I hired 90% of my women friends. <laughs> so, um, but when I, you know, when I think about uh, when I was a teenager wanting to be a filmmaker, we, there really were so few women role models. And, uh, you know, we all look towards people like, you know, Maya Darren and all these, you know, the very few that were out there. And when I look now, there's just so, I mean, I think we really, really have come a long way. And the level of confidence that I see in younger women is just blows my mind. Um, I think also that one thing women do really well is organize. And there's, you know, we got the film fatales having a presence at festivals and, um, and I think they're really having a, a, an impact in holding the industry accountable. Um, so, you know, also, one thing I would really like to see is um, some structural changes so that this profession be can become sustainable. Now, Angie, you made your first film in okay. middle age. I don't to call you middle age. Yes. I, I, I never think of you as middle age. But, um, but you did. And that's, that's got, and there, there's the age barriers that, you know, we're facing in addition to being a woman, a woman of color. And mm -hmm. So how did you navigate that? Um, you know, I think we've talked about this before, and I think there's a beauty to not knowing what you don't know. <laughs> so I think for me, coming from Silicon Valley and coming from that kind of background, you know, I think it's really important for women um, in, in this industry and, and, and in general to take responsibility for the finances, too. You know, like I wanted, to, I looked over the producer's shoulder all the time and I was like, no, nah, that's fucked up. Like, we're not doing this. Like, <laughs> and I think that, you know, it's, it's okay and, and we, we have to kind of step forward as leaders also. You know, people were always like, you were a first time director, did people not respect you on set? And I was like, didn't know who the fucking queen was. But, <laughs> you know, um, I, also, I also feel a big responsibility to drive this home. As a woman in the driver's seat, like, I want to crew up with women. A fascinating discussion. But there were more movies to see. I joined my wife, Christine, and my Snap Sessions partner, Ken, and went to see Meeting Gorbachev, directed by Werner Herzog. It was a great film, honoring a very brave man, who history will likely judge in a split-verdict kind of way. However, Herzog made a truly memorable film, and we all had something to say afterwards. Hi, I'm here with uh, Christine Samus and Ken Krause. We've just watched Meeting Gorbachev, which is a Werner Herzog film. Uh, it was a, a documentary where Herzog um, spent three long interviews with Gorbachev. Gorbachev now in his late 80s. Of course, he was one of the architects of the end of the Cold War, and he was there at the end of the Soviet Union. Um, I found the film very effective. Um, uh, Christine, what did you think? I was surprised at how moved I was okay. by it. I was really. Um, I I don't I don't know as much about history as you do. So there was a lot of stuff that I was learning or, or putting all together. You know, like I remember little bits and pieces, but here it was organized into one block uh, narrative line. Um, he was a very genuine person and a very principled person, and he had a philosophy and. I just found him to be a very moving character. Yeah. Ken. Oh, I, I too found it was, I liked what uh, Herzog said, that he was authentic. 
and compared to the current political uh, uh, personalities we deal with now, he was like somebody who was a real person. You know, you talk about, in our country, we talk about, oh, I want a politician I can have a beer with. I don't want a politician I can have a beer with. I want somebody who can think and who has a philosophy and has ethics. And he had all of that in yeah. spades. Plus, he was a human being. When he talked about his wife, I had tears rolling down oh. my cheeks. Well, I, the other thing is, is that just seeing in the history of everything, seeing how everything was so much on his shoulders, and yet he was able to handle that burden. And we see people like Reagan getting credit for, for the uh, right. the fall of the, the, the whole Berlin Wall and everything. It wasn't. It wasn't at all. It was it was Gorbachev. Gorbachev had the vision that brought that to be. Yeah, yeah I love that when he said um, that thing about how the United States get it, it goes to our heads, and we say we, we, you know, we claim victory, and he said we all won. Yeah. And and also, I liked Herzog's style as an interviewer. He just he's, is he's such good, an huh? amazing interviewer. Uh, I have to say, uh, is perhaps final thoughts for now, at least on this one. Um, Herzog remains an individual filmmaker. Yes. He will be remembered. You could take a variety of his films and say, uh, this guy must be different than the other guy, and yeah. they would be comparing him to different Herzog films. Yeah. So. I talked to filmmakers all weekend, as did Ken. I started with local filmmaker Lori York, who had a short film in the Mendocino Shorts collection called Stardust in the Wind. Lori already has a national and international body of work, including Freedom to Marry, about the initial explosion of gay marriages in San Francisco during Gavin Newsom's first term as mayor. This film has been shown on PBS and screened all over the world. I sat down to talk to Lori about her most recent entry. Hi, I'm here with Lori York, who is um, ostensibly a local filmmaker, but Lori has already made a variety of movies that have been seen around the world. Um, she has made uh, Freedom to Marry, which was influential uh, in uh, moving forward the agenda on uh, ability of gay people to marry in this country. But Lori's entry in this year's film festival is called Stardust in the Wind, and it's really quite a beautiful um, film. First of all, Lori, welcome, and tell us a little bit about uh, Stardust in the Wind. Oh, well, thanks for uh, interviewing me. It's nice to see you, Doug. Um, Stardust in the Wind. Well, okay. W what happened with that film was I was outside one day and I was leaf blowing. It was in the fall and the leaves were golden on the ground and the sun was coming through the leaves and they were backlit. And as I was leaf blowing, I just thought it was the most beautiful image, you know, these leaves fluttering in the wind and the, you know, backlit like that. And so I went in and grabbed my camera and I filmed them in slow motion. And then when I looked at the footage, uh, I, I, it felt important to me somehow. It felt, it, it, it felt like this could be the beginning of a film. This could lead into more. And I was, I was thinking a lot about time and light and movement. I was thinking about the passage of time, especially, and how we go through, how we go through different eras in our life, you know, and I feel like I'm in a different era in my life. I'm older now, and I'm a senior, and, um, and the, you know, the golden leaves, you know, represent a different stage of the circle of the year, and so I kind of feel like I'm in my maybe in my golden years, and 
Um, so anyhow, I just wanted to kind of, kind of let go with the idea of, of time, the passage of time. And, and then I thought about Joni Mitchell has, um, you know, her song Woodstock. Uh-huh. And uh, in her song Woodstock, she, she says, um, we, are, we are stardust, we are golden, we are billion-year-old carbon, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Oh, that's right. That's, well, you know, I know you're a photographer, too, and you have a, a website that has Laura York Photography. What impressed me a lot, this is a short film for, for your other documentaries, are of course, much longer feature length, but this film uh, has an extraordinary amount of beautiful sort of photography, cinematography. What kind of camera did you use? And I'm just curious about Well, that. I used two cameras. Okay. Um, one camera was actually um, a gimbal with an iPhone. Um, the gimbal is amazing because it holds the iPhone very steady. Mm-hmm. And so you can do a lot of motion shots and tracking. Um, if you if you remember that opening scene with the the stream flowing down, yeah. and then the camera pans up the stream, and I'm walking up the stream, um, that was done with the with the gimbal and the iPhone. Wow. And the iPhone is pretty amazing. I mean, it's really quite good, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the HD quality is is as good as my uh, DSLR, which is a, a Canon seventy uh, D. And I used both cameras. Now, if I want to shoot uh, like a beautiful shot with uh, bokeh in the background, which is a soft uh, kind of blurry background that makes mm-hmm. everything, your subject just pops forward and it's so mm-hmm. beautiful, then I use my DSLR. And I did that on a lot of the, um, of the you know, flowers and the blossoms on the trees, the spring, you know, apple blossoms and... Uh, the close-up of the frog, and it's amazing the technology these days and what can be done, you know, very easily with an iPhone. Like Laurie, silent film curator George Russell lives here on the North Coast. He is a silent film scholar and put together the Mendocino Film Festival Friday Night Silence Show at the Big Tent. We'll let George introduce the show. Give us the overview. Yes, so this is a program of short films from my collection. And in the past, with the musicians I mentioned earlier, I had the opportunity to let them choose what they wish to play. But because my collection isn't here, I did sort of a cinematic wine and cheese pairing and suggested certain titles to the following musicians that uh, they might wish to accompany. And they said, fine. So the first half of the program begins with DJ Tony Della Torre, who is very well known around here. He's played many festivals in this country. What this program is doing is presenting four very discrete styles of performance for silent films. He's playing three. The first of them is a hand uh, stenciled and tinted film from 1907 called The Red Spectre. It's a French film, it's a conjuring film, trick photography, and it's one of the best that I know. The second film he's doing is the Mount Tamalpais Muirwoods Railway, 1898. This is 121 years ago, and 1906. And the 1898 portion is an Edison film which shows the old inn, long gone. And the second portion, which is longer, is an unbroken traveling shot from that inn um, down to the metropolis of Mill Valley, along the crookedest railroad in the world. And what's interesting, they, they've mounted a camera on in the front of a gravity car, and they're following an excursion train 
down that line. Sonny Cordell and Carl Shane. Yes, I know them. Both of them multi-instrumentalists. And uh, because I've seen them play a number of times, I thought that they would be ideal to play a Charlie Chase film. One of my favorite comedians, not as well-known, but very, very interesting, who worked as a director and a scenario writer and a gag man in The Coming of Sound. He was a really good guitar player and singer. And he's sort of... he's, He's... not a Chaplin or a Keaton in terms of his character. He's, he's sort of Mr. Normal. But in the context of Mr. Normal, this guy would come up with some of the most bizarre, outrageous kind of gags that I've never seen anyone else do. And some of those are in this film, which is called Forgotten Sweeties, that Sonny and Carl are going to play. Sonny is bringing her bass clarinet, a bass clarinet. Amazing. And her clarinet, Carl is playing tenor sax and flute, which is going to work beautifully for this sort of dream sequence, and assorted percussion instruments. The second half features two master musicians from all of these people from Mendocino County. The first features Alex de Grassi, who is a wizard of fingerstyle guitar. He studied blues, he studied jazz styles, classical. He's, he's a phenomenal player. He's written a book about this kind of playing. He's performed at Mantra, Carnegie Hall. What he's going to play on Friday night is Charlie Chaplin's The Immigrant. And immigration, a timely subject now. Yes, definitely. And this film happened to be made by uh, arguably the most famous immigrant of his day. And uh, it's sort of like a two-act play, part of it on shipboard. And obviously these immigrants, the way they're dressed and comporting themselves, are from Eastern Europe, because that was the time in 1917. Um, and uh, the second half is sort of this, this comedy in, in a cafe where he can do all this business. But there's, there's a, a very interesting visual comment that he makes about his arrival in, in the new land. And that's the first half with Alex de Grassi. Okay, to great. conclude the program, <laughs> to conclude, and I'm so happy he's doing this, is one of the best percussionists I've ever seen, Ralph Humphrey who lives here. Uh, He started out in the late 60s. One of his earliest engagements was with the Don Ellis Big Band. He also was in the final iteration of the Mothers of Invention with Frank Zappa. Zappa, And so this is difficult music. And so he's quite the player. Uh, He also has written a book called uh, Even the Odds about time signatures in in percussion. He's been an educator. He's done all kinds of studio work. Um, he, He just floors me every time I see him play. And I thought of him playing a Buster Keaton film because Keaton has this wonderful kinetic quality like no other. And I have seen, uh, and it's called Cops from 1922. Keaton was only 27 when he made it. Chaplin was about 28 when he made The Immigrant. And uh, Chaplin, if, if he had a nemesis, it would be one big policeman, one big cop. Keaton's nemesis is the entire Los Angeles police force. That's the difference. (laughs) This implacable universe of blue. Well, this is going to be a pleasure, and um, one of the great attractions of this particular Mendocino Film Festival 2019 is the fact that we get a big George Russell silent film show on Friday night, accompanied by very good local musicians. It'll be my pleasure and joy. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Very welcome, Doug. Thank you. Very welcome. With more than 50 films screening, there is a ton of variety available at the Mendocino Film Festival. I attended a superb film, The Shoreline Project, a documentary by Canadian filmmaker Liz Miller about how communities around the world are dealing with rising shorelines in this era of the climate crisis. 
Hi, I'm here with Liz Miller, uh, who is a Canadian filmmaker. We just watched The Shoreline Project, or we watched parts of it, because The Shoreline Project is a beautiful, uh, interactive piece of filmmaking that joins together all these stories about people responding to climate change and to differing coastlines. And this is a non-conventional film, so it's really like a database, and it's set on a fictitious global coast that is an excuse or a means to bring together all these change makers from around the world who are working to respond to some of the challenges playing out along our global coasts. Now that I'm in Mendocino, I'm immersing myself in finding out what's happening in Mendocino. But the kinds of issues you have taking place around the world are like oil extraction, nuclear spills, um, mangrove, mangrove extraction. So there's all kinds of threats, but the objective is to connect these local stories to this global framework. Yeah, I thought it was great. The one, the variety of aspects that come up. You mention in the movie that there's six chapters. Um, there's 43 stories from nine countries. And um, I thought it was fascinating. We were just this morning, just having seen maybe uh, half a dozen little pieces. We were in Chile talking about glaciers. We were in Panama talking about... Uh, See, that was also mangroves. We were in Bangladesh talking about uh, about the coastline and saline. Uh, and floating schools and libraries oh, and it. gardens. That was absolutely fascinating. You know what's interesting is if we followed the coast, the coast has no nationality. And when we're looking at the way we're going to respond to the kind of threats that are approaching us, we do have to think beyond borders. We have to think beyond disciplines. We have to think beyond the way we've um, organized ourselves and thought about our uh, affinities. If you think about if governments were organized along the principles of the coastline, we would have different government structures. So we really have to start rethinking the way uh, we relate to others and we govern ourselves. I'll give you an example. The coast of Vancouver has five different governing bodies that organize that coast. Port Authority, for example, is one of them. To convene those five authorities in a moment of emergency is really complicated. Another place that we mm. went to, which is Long Beach Island in New Jersey, there are five mares along a 17-kilometer barrier island. This kind of government infrastructure isn't really what we need in moving forward. And that's where citizen movements come in. Because citizens, I think, um, across any country, we're beginning to talk to each other in new ways, share resources, share solutions. And so that's what this project was trying to feature, is that the ways we're already breaking boundaries. There were lots of provocative, inspiring, and educational films on political and cultural issues at the 2019 Mendocino Film Festival. One of my assignments was to attend the screening of Ai Weiwei, Yours Truly, a film on famed Chinese artist and political dissident Ai Weiwei. The post-film Q&A with director Cheryl Haynes, as well as her editor Gina Lebrecht and writer Sharon Wood, was particularly illuminating. So we have Carol Haynes, the director of Inside. First of all, this is an incredible creation uh, that you made. 
uh, as a team. Uh, and I have incredible appreciation for the way in which you told the story, which is both about art and activism. And Cheryl, my question to you as a, as a lover of art and a purveyor and gallery owner, where, where did you find your activism? Where did, at what point did this become a call to action for you? You know, it's really hard to pinpoint the exact moment, um, but I have to say it was very early on in the process of working with Weiwei because he's just so inspirational. So the kernel of it was really my, my conversations with him. And then as I found out about his early life and, and growing up um, in exile and his, his father's sacrifice um, and how he had carried that within him for so many years, it started to spark uh, within me uh, an, an understanding of how important it is to, to speak out for our beliefs over time. And um, I, was, I was an activist before this of a different sort. Um, I've actually just come to own it now. <laughs> It's a little different. Um, I was involved with Tibetan human rights causes for many years. All right, and I wanted to know, this seems to me like the gutsiest thing in the world, uh, your discovery that uh, having the exhibition in a, a prison was a good idea, but uh, how did you make that happen? You had to deal, it felt to me like with the American government, if it's a federal prison and it's a national park, and then you also had the Chinese government. So how did, how did, you, how did you do that? Well, it, it, I wouldn't say it's easier than it looks, but um, the, the Chinese government really wasn't part of the conversation at all. Um, they, they had no awareness of this project until after the fact. Um, I know that we were being surveilled, and I know that we were being listened to a lot, and, but depending upon what aspect of the project, we would take it out into the courtyard, or we would take a walk around the neighborhood in order to discuss certain things. And Like, for example, on our Skype calls, of which there were many, we had weekly Skype calls for, for months, uh, the word Tibet was never mentioned because um, that's just an impossible conversation there, no matter how famous you are, how high profile. And as far as the U.S. government, um, I have to say, well, it wouldn't happen under this administration, of course, but having an exhibition like that in a national park, it, it, the, the leadership got it. I don't know how, how many of you just love our national parks and realize how incredibly important they are to this, to this culture. They are the jewels in the crown. And they are actually the supervisor and a lot of the people that are making the decisions around this project are as much heroes as the people that are de depicted in this film because they really want to bow for this. And we got State Department approval and I would say six hours. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's another film in the whole making of it, like a real story. I wish that would be how long it would take me to get my DMV, my driver's license. A completely different kind of film with a director with a very interesting background was MDMA, directed by wonderfully irreverent Angie Wang. MDMA tells the story of a young woman named Angie, a classic model minority who ends up working her way through college in the 1980s by selling ecstasy. And um, so uh, what kind of, you know, inspired, you had also said that you've been through different um, incarnations as Angie Wang in your life. Yes. You had so maybe a partying 20s, and then you got involved in the tech industry, mm -hmm. and the, in your 30s, in nonprofits. Then you decided to make a film. Where did you start? Where did you start deciding, I want to make this film now? 
Yeah, you know, well, I, I had a nice run in Silicon Valley. I was lucky enough to have a nice run. And then I found myself in this really enviable situation where I was like, I don't need to sling hash anymore for a living if I don't want to, which was incredible. Um, but I think it brought about sort of an early existentialist crisis, you know, because I had all this time on my hands. Um, so I tried to be a PTA mom. As you can imagine, I'm a very shitty PTA mom. Uh, <laughs> um, and then I kept, I kept feeling a very persistent call to give back. Uh, you know, I'm lucky to be in the position that I'm in, um, especially coming from the background that I came from. So I started a nonprofit called GROW, uh, mm-hmm. which stands for Global Resiliency Outreach Work. And we basically go into... Um, you know, challenging neighborhoods, and we work with at-risk youth, particularly in middle school, and we give them a venue to be able to talk about some of the very real challenges that are going on in their lives. And I found that initially, I mean, they, their walls were up when I walked in the room, and I was like, let's talk about your life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I found that by being very candid and open about my own life experiences, it gave them the safety to be able to kind of hash out what they were going through. And I thought, man, that's kind of what's wrong with our world today. You know, I felt like I feel like the empathy is bleeding out of us at an alarming rate. So I thought, well, how can I make people feel something? And like I was saying, I'm a kid who's brought up on on film and TV. So um, I thought, you know, maybe I'll do something along those lines. Uh, And so it it really, it started as a little kind of flicker and then it kind of blossomed into a flame. And then all of a sudden I was like, holy shit, I'm like on set, I'm shooting a movie. Oh yeah, I just recently watched this with my father for the very first time. I mean, I hadn't seen my father in like three and a half years. We had a little bit of a, like we have, you know, a little bit of a, a, you know, tempestuous relationship, but he came to visit in Los Angeles and he was like, I would like to watch your movie. And I was like, fuck me. (laughs) (laughs) So we sat down in my living room and we watched a movie and, um, you know, it, there were certain pieces where I was like, God, why did I write that dialogue? Uh, but he, he took it like a champ, and he really, it was, um, it was a great healing opportunity for us. You know, I think that he recognized that I, I honored him, and I, you know, I, I really, he was my first great love, you know, he's my dad, he's the template for, for all love for me, you know, and, and he, so it really, it, it was an opportunity for us to sort of break down a wall, and um, it was cathartic. Wow. To finally show your estranged dad a film on this relatively sensitive topic. What an exciting and odd event for a filmmaker. A particularly unique, one-of-a-kind documentary at the festival was Scott Balseric's Satan and Adam, about an unlikely musical partnership. Balseric directed and edited the film over an epic 23-year period. Let's let Scott Balseric introduce this film. Hi, I'm uh, V. Scott Balseric. I'm the director of Satan and Adam, um, a film I've been making for 23 years. <laughs> and uh, you've... Uh... What excited you about this film? What drew you to this film? How'd you hear about it? How'd the story? Um, well, I'm, uh, I'll first start off by saying that I'm a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you play? At the time, guitar. Mm-hmm. And um, a songwriter as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, I've been in bands, like, doing both. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, was living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I'm from. And at the time, I was just out of college, and I was editing a friend's film, who was also a musician, and he was making a a film for CalArts, his uh, thesis project at CalArts. And it was about this street singer named Bill Dorsey. It was called Street Songs. And it was the first film I ever edited. I was sort of a musician but didn't have any film background but was very interested in film. Mm -hmm. And a lot of musicians kind of 
gravitate when they gravitate towards film, they go to editing first because it's very there's a lot of music and cutting and you know it's like arranging a song. Hundred yeah, yeah, percent. Yeah, it's very much like that. Yeah. Um, the structure of movies and the structure of songs is yeah. something that you have to keep in mind. There's also a rhythm pace thing. So I was starting to get into that. Well, that film, which is about a blind uh, street singer in Pittsburgh, went on to win the Student Academy Award, and I was like, wow, you know. Um, I think I want to keep doing this because finally maybe I found something I'm kind of good at, you know. But um, other musicians said, you know, you got to come see these guys. They're playing in Pittsburgh. They're from Harlem. But they're playing in a bar and they're also street musicians. Yeah. And I didn't know anything about them. So yeah. I don't know how many people were in it, whatever. So um, when I walked into the bar, you, you had to pay. You couldn't see, but you could hear them. And I was like, wow, I mean, like that's a lot of people for... You know, they would play on the street. Yeah. They turn the corner, it's like two, but it sounded like five people. They had this amazing sound. And I remember just being completely struck by not only their sound, that it that was it was like a beautiful cacophony, you know, it was like this wild sound, and it wasn't really the old the blues that we all know. Right. It was kind of a funk, like Parliament yeah. Funkadelic meets Robert Johnson meets George Clinton, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, Sun Ra. I mean, it was, it was really unique, and they they were going these long jams, and I was just like transfixed, uh, watching them. And then the one guy was this sort of grizzled black guy, and someone had said he's a Mississippi guy, he's a Mississippi blues artist, he was yeah. older, and so there's that whole you know myth, and his name was Satan. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, all all of a sudden, and I remember Adam, super young at the time. This was years ago. Yeah. Um, and uh, I had this, this, this film, Street Songs, that I had just edited for my friend. He's won these awards, and I'm like, this could be the next film. And so that's how it all started. Another must-see film for me was The Twelfth Man, made by Norwegian director Harald Svart and starring Irish actor Jonathan Rhys Meyer. It tells the story of a Norwegian resistance fighter in World War II and the heroic attempts of a variety of Norwegians and Laplanders to get him to safety. I listened in on their post-film panel discussion, led once again by Claudia Puig. This is such a thrilling, suspenseful, and fascinating story for those of us who don't know the story. And it's also like a shot of adrenaline to your heart in so many scenes. Um, and of course, it's inspiring and heroic. And then we have a villain down there. But <laughs> a villain who learned to speak German for this role. Tell us about that. I'm the villain. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's war. So, um, you know, um, Norway was invaded by the Nazis. That had a, a particular ideology. They had a particular stranglehold at that time. And I suppose they were attracted to Norway because it fitted into Hitler's sort of um, warped view of Aryan perfection. And so they thought that Norway would only open their doors and appreciate this, this, um, this, ideolo this ideology, this um, fantasy, this mythology of Aryan superiority. And they were quite surprised when the Norwegians told them to fuck off. One of the more fascinating aspects of the Twelfth Man was working with reindeer and the Sami people formerly known as Laplanders, who trained them. We'll let Harald Svart and Claudia Puig 
talk about it. I did. And there were a thousand reindeer in that scene. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was, um, uh, I mean, I can tell that story too, but uh, I, I went up there and I met the Sami people. They're wonderful people. And, and for, for you who don't understand the language, when the Samis were talking to each other, they were speaking in their own language. We don't understand that language. Uh, and they are so full of wit and they have so much fun on our behalf. So first times I was up there, they were making jokes all the time and I understood that I was the, <laughs> I was the one being joking. Joke? Yeah. Yes. And then I, and there's, you know, when they speak to somebody like me, they're very, they don't say much. And, and I said, so, he said, uh, well, how many reindeer do you want? And I said, well, have a, a thousand? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Come back in April. Because, you know, these reindeer are scattered all over and then they collect them for one week and then they herd them all down to the coast. So that one week was the one week we had to shoot all those reindeer. And uh, we came up to the mountains and uh, maybe they were 995 or they were 1,005, I'm not sure. But we came up there, I could not see one single reindeer. And then uh, I spoke to, you know, the producers, I said, did you, did you pay them? I mean, what's wrong? And the guy said, no, no, they're here. And I was like, how can you hide a thousand reindeer? <laughs> and, then I said, and then he said, so what do you want? And I said, well, I'd like them to come around the bend and then, you know, split up around the little thing and then just run over the hill and then cross the border and then when they're down there, make a left. <laughs> and, yeah. and the guy said, okay. <laughs> and he just left on his little snowmobile and gone and we're like and then okay nothing and we're where are those reindeer and then eventually we got we're coming like we got roll cameras three cameras one on crane everyone was there and then we just saw a thousand reindeer and they came around the corner they split up right there they went right across the thing over the border and then make a left <laughs> like exactly how I said it I was like, I'm the best director in the world. <laughs> I did nothing. One little dog, this big, went back and forth. That's how they controlled it. So the guy was on the snowmobile, and the dog went, and then he went exactly where he said. This is one take. One, one take, yeah, because, you know, the snow was ruined after that. So we just had that one take, and that was perfect. Just another fabulous Q&A at the Mendocino Film Festival. At the end of this long and joyful weekend of films, and after many years of presenting them, operations head Alex and techmeister Marshall take stock. You know, there's this group of people and all these moving pieces, and then we produce this thing, and we show it to everybody, and most of the time it's wonderfully received yeah. and that's you know it's a good feeling a team production and given totally. to the community i mean it's yeah. it's a big deal to you know this small town having a world-class film festival mm -hmm. and a world-class music festival it's like yeah. this size of a town you don't yeah. you don't see that no. yeah so. totally. i don't see ever walking away from it at least for now you know i mean especially with a you know 85 percent of my projection staff are my students so there's a real like there's a uh, there's a cost benefit to it and and, you know, I'm a paid staff member. Yes, totally. But um, do um, I think it, it just it it benefits me in a way that I get to just try new things every year and experiment and learn more technically. And I get to see all these films. And it's just nice to be in that perspective. 
Um, and, and then just for my students to give them that opportunity, like real world, you're working with people who were, are working in the industry. On the way home from the festival in the car, I talked with my wife, Christine, who seemed to put the whole weekend and the Mendocino Film Festival in perspective. One of the things I absolutely love about the film festival, and one of the reasons why I like to go every year, is because you see all these movies over the course of three or four days, and each one of them is a little slice of something. Some nicely articulated or beautifully articulated piece of the human experience. And you go from one movie to the next, and there starts to be this cumulative effect where you see something beautiful about humanity, something beautifully expressed, something poignant, something moving, and it starts to build up in your heart. So you come away, or I come away ultimately from them, from the experience of the days of the film festival with this big, full heart and an experience of the feeling that human beings are my favorite animal. They're also my least favorite animal, but this highlights the most favorite animal part, and it makes me feel happy to be part of this human experience. And that's why I love it. That's why I want to come every year. And like Christine, we keep coming back. We thank the Mendocino Film Festival for giving us access to so many of the movers and shakers of the festival, and we are glad to be part of it. We hope for many more years, and with such a stellar group of hardworking participants, we see a sustainable future for our little yearly explosion of films. It will return in late May 2020. Please join us. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you.